Genesis chapter 12. Before we begin studying through the 12th chapter of Genesis, I want to take a side road detour to discuss a bit of church history and how it aligns with our chapter from today and even last week's chapter as well. It was the year 1618, almost exactly 100 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to that castle door of Wittenberg, which was the catalyst for the Reformation and the birth of the evangelical church. And within those 100 years, the Christian church began to flourish and to spread. The Bible was published in the common languages of that time. And within this time frame, Christian colleges and universities were formed to train young men for the ministry of the saints. And coming out of them were divisions. Divisions aren't necessarily bad. And God, from the very beginning of church history, has used division and error to hone the doctrines of his church. And this century was no different. In the Netherlands, in 1618, a group of over 100 pastors and theologians gathered because of a doctrinal differences that were being taught and which were hostile to the common understanding of the salvation of God. The meeting of these men from nine different countries was called the Synod of Dort. Now, a synod, that means council or assembly, and Dort was the name of the town. Synods weren't out of the ordinary. They didn't happen often, but they did happen and occur within church history. And the Synod of Dort met to discuss the five points of these, of these men, this group of men, that were followers of, of a theologian named Jacobus Arminius, who had been a student of John Calvin. The theological stance that these men took came in the form of five points of contention, or the five points of the remonstrance that they taught and which they held. What these men were saying was that man was not dead in our trespasses of sin, that we could choose God, that Christ died for all humanity, that man could refuse the call of God, and that since we chose salvation, we could lose salvation. And the Synod of Dort met for two years. And at the end of two years, they made a decision called the Canons of Dort. A canon is a rule or an authority. And what the Canons of Dort contains are a collective agreement of these theologians who searched the scriptures, discussed the validity of the views held by those men, and then made a ruling, all based from scripture. And what the Canon of Dort stated was that the men who held these beliefs and stated those five points of the remonstrance were wrong in every one of them. And then the biblical proof for each of the corrections to the five points of the remonstrance is what has become known as the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, TULIP. That canon, by the way, that canon, that ruling, the Synod of Dort, is completely scripturally sound, and it has never been overthrown or even openly debated within the church. I want you to hang on to that. But the church at large, 
probably would have been a lot better off if people hadn't decided to, to try to summarize the canons of Dort, tried to actually break them down to make it easier to remember. And they came up with an acronym five, for the five points of the canons of Dort. And that acronym is TULIP. And TULIP stands for Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. And the letters that make up that acronym are not a complete and full understanding of what was decided in the canons of Dort, but they are accurate. Take total depravity. Most people, most Christians, mind you, will say that this is wrong. Man is not totally depraved. There are nice people out there. There are kind people out there. Very few people actually are even mostly evil. I mean, most people are generally good. Even Adolf Hitler loved his mother, had a dog that he loved. He wasn't completely evil. And this is what makes those acronyms so confusing. Total depravity doesn't mean that every human action is hateful or mean. What total depravity means is that human nature is thoroughly corrupt and sinful as a result of the sin of Adam, firstly, and then our own sin. And that every action of man, and I want you to hear me on this, every action of man is sinful. No matter how kind, no matter how thoughtful, no matter how selfless, every action outside of the intervention of God is evil because they are not done for the glory of God. The T, which stands for total depravity, has been demonstrated to us already in this book of Genesis, thoroughly corrupt and sinful. Well, what does that mean? And how do we even know that this is truth? Well, God said in Genesis 8, verse 21, in the middle of saying that he's going to make a covenant to never destroy the world again by flood, God said, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And this truth, that truth is retold to us over and again throughout the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, we're told, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's verse 6. And then the very next verse, verse 7, explains what is meant that we are like a polluted garment. What makes us this way? Which one of our actions demonstrate this? Verse 7, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. We're told in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my sin did my, in, my sin, in sin did my mother conceive me. In Psalm 58, verses 3 through 5, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf adder that stops its ears so it doesn't hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. We're told in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and once you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what total depravity means. And we've had this demonstrated to us already in the book of Genesis. Then they said, Come, let us build our, uh, ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, verse 4. When you heard me talk about total depravity and, and being shown to us in the book of Genesis, you were expecting me to point back to that drunken nakedness of Noah as to what total depravity looked like. Or maybe even go back a little bit further to Abel and Cain. But this, the building of this city, how is this an accurate and helpful representation of total depravity? I mean, all they wanted to do was stick together, build the city, be unified, get along. And what's wrong with that? Why is that wrong in any way, let alone totally depraved? Because God gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in Genesis 9-7. And that we are confused by this. That we don't see compliance of these humans instead of complete obedience that is required to be children of God. That we don't see this as sin. Just proves that even after salvation, that we are still tainted by sin. But we really don't think that what they did was sin. Or even understand that their sin was treason. We dismiss compliance as sin. And we think that we actually are decent people. After all, we are kind to animals. We hardly ever swear, most of us. We, we dress appropriately. We even give to charities. And all these things are those filthy rags that are spoken of in Isaiah 6. We need to stop and agree on one simple fact. We need to know God. And we don't know God. We know about him. We know some facts about him. We might be able to list some of his attributes but that we can't see compliance as sin reveals the truth of the tea of that tulip. We are utterly depraved and can't know God outside of his spirit revealing himself to us. Man is not good. God is good. Man is sinful and by nature now a hater of God. Even those kind, well-dressed, and pleasant-smelling ones. And even after regeneration, even after a lifetime of walking with God, we still don't know him. And this might be a little controversial to you, thinking, no, I do know God. What you need to understand is that we have to be set free from these bodies of death in order to truly know him. And even then, even then, we are going to spend an eternity learning of him being amazed at him, worshiping him. 
Genesis 11 proves the T of total depravity. It proves that men, even those that hear the very voice of God, see the very hand of God at work, even those cannot and will not obey. They will sin because they are sin. And nothing has changed. And nothing will ever change either. At the end of the age, when the Lord returns and brings with him the wrath of God and begins pouring his wrath on a God-hating, God-denying world, even then, in the midst of his wrath, men will still hate him, will still deny his sovereignty. And that truth is told to us in Revelation 16, verses 10 and 11, where we read of the fifth angel, pouring out his, the bowl of his wrath on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people nod their tongues in anguish, and they curse the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Genesis 11 is proof of the T and total depravity. In Genesis 12, Genesis 12 proves the U of unconditional election. Verse 1 of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now outside of the genealogy of chapter 11, we aren't given much information concerning this man Abram. But then again, we weren't much given much information about that man Noah either. We are never told why Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why it was said of him that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6, 9. Why he was chosen to build an ark, to preach the truth to mankind. And why he and only his family are told to enter the ark. We are told of the lineage of Abram coming from that man Noah whose lineage was given us concern, coming from that man, Adam. And we're told in chapter 11 that Abram was, married, was a married man, that his wife Sarai was barren, that his brother died, and that he, along with his wife, his nephew, and father, left from Ur of the Chaldeans with the intent to go into the land of Canaan, but stopped short in Haran. Now, Ur of the Chaldeans is, this, is in the southeast corner of modern-day Iran. And when they left from there, they traveled north, and then they traveled west, past where the Tower of Babel was, past the town of Nineveh, and then straight west to Haran, which is on the western border of the land of Canaan, above where present-day Israel is. And it was there that verse 1 happened. We need to look no further than verse 1 of chapter 12 to see demonstrated for us not only unconditional election, but also limited atonement. Now, you may be one of those Christians that say that God is sovereign and even believe that that is truth until it comes to the how of salvation. You may not like thinking that God in his infinite wisdom chose some that he would live and die for. 
that while the gospel call is to be obeyed by all, repent and believe on Jesus the Christ, that only those that have been regenerated by the indwelling work of the Spirit, that they and only they can obey his command to come and live. I mean, you may be one of those Christians that hold to that doctrine of predestination. I have to because it's in the Bible. But if you think, when you think of predestination, that the predestination of God is him, is God sitting down at his desk, working on the books for the final days, and there he grabs a clean, fresh book, and he writes on the heading, the Lamb's Book of Life. And then he opens the first page, and on page one he writes at the top, all that are given to my beloved son. And then he stops. He's already sent his son to be born of a virgin. And his son has obeyed and has gone. He's lived a perfect sinless life and died on a, uh, a sinner on the cross. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God has had the full wrath of his Father poured out on him as a propitiation for those that the Father has given to the Son. He has shed his precious blood for vile humans. His Son has died has risen from the grave and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the Son, as the Father is, is writing this, he's looking over the shoulder of his Father. And he's a bit confused when his Father stops writing. Who is it that the Father has given to me, he wonders. Does he not know? Is he just getting old, forgetful? And then the father pushes back from the desk, gets up and walks to the door that leads down the hallway of time, looks down that hallway to see who it is that's going to raise their hand, walk that aisle, claim that golden ticket to salvation. And once he sees them, then he comes back and he sits down at his desk and he writes those names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then, then the son knows who his torture, his death, and his resurrection was for. And it's then that the Son knows who to make intercession for. Those that raised their hand, that walked that aisle, they have made a good choice, a right choice. They are smart, and the rest are stupid. That God chooses those that he saves is not argued. How he does it is. And the question that we should be asking ourselves at this point is, how did he choose Abram? Why did he choose Abram? Or did Abram choose him? Well, it's clear from the Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, that God chose Abram, just like he did Noah. And just like Noah, Abram was no saint. He was a pagan, as told to us in, John, in Joshua chapter 24, which tells us, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Did you hear that? They served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the, all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abram wasn't brought up in a Christian home. He was an idolater from a family of idolaters. 
So why did God choose Abram? And remember, he had other who were his servants at that time. He had Job. He had Melchizedek. Why didn't he choose one of them? Or even one of the people from the city of Salem? After all, it was the city of peace. And these people had to have been worshipers of God. They had the priest of God as their king. A man who Abraham would later pay homage to. But God chose an idolater. Why? And isn't it unfair that God chose Abram? Why didn't he give a free will choice to all mankind? Why didn't he have an open casting call? I mean, what if someone else desired to be the father of faith? Isn't that unfair? I mean, didn't Job deserve that more than Abram? Think about what Job suffered. Why Abram? Why did God choose Abram? The simple answer is that he is God. And he will not share his glory with anyone or anything, Isaiah 42.8. The simple answer is that, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself, it's a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. The simple answer as to why he chose Abram is given to us in Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The simple answer as to why he chose Abram is given to us in Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And years after Abram, after the choosing of that, there's the lecture again, uh, of the choosing of that nation Israel, after the exodus from Egypt and the giving of the covenant of the law, Moses stopped to explain to the people of Israel just why God had chosen them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 or 8. He said to them, for you, are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Wouldn't it have been fair? For I mean, the fair thing really should have been that God should have just allowed anybody to come and, and decide if they wanted to be part of that nation or not. But that's verse 6. And here the reality that God chooses some and passes over is told to us and shown to us. And now the why that he does this. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verses 7 and 8. And in, in them, we're told why God chooses. But if we stop there, if we stop reading there, we might get the idea that the Israelites were just a better group of people. Of people. 
They were nicer, more religious. They had better manners, maybe. But when we finish the explanation given by Moses, Moses as to why of the choosing of God, it's then that we understand what the love of God that is manifested through his choosing, what it is and why it is. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandment to a thousand generations and repays to those to their face those who hate him by destroying them. And he will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face, verses 9 and 10. That is why God spoke to this man, Abram. Why he called this man. Why he predestined this man. And why he's about to make a covenant with this man and give him a command, as told to us in verses 2 and 3. There he says, I will make a great nation of you, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God at this point didn't tell Abram that this was a covenant promise. He's going to do that later. But here, now, he just speaks a command to this man who up to this point was not a believer and then promises him, unthinkable things. And so what does this unbeliever who was an idol worshiper previously, what does he do when commanded by the Lord to pack up everything that he has and leave everyone that he's ever known? What does he do? And don't forget, moving was dangerous, was lonely, was costly. What did Abram do when commanded by the Lord to go? Verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord has told him, and Lot went with him. He obeyed. He proved his election, his predestination, through obedience. The The predestination of God still has not changed, nor has the reaction of those that are predestined The call of the gospel is this, repent and believe and you'll be saved. And the call, the promise made to Abram is a representation of that eternal call and promise made to the children of Abraham. The effectual call of God to repent and believe is shown to us here. The you of unconditional election is revealed to us here. The gospel is to be told to all people, repent and believe. And it's the voice of God that empowers this call. Those that are given ears, those that he is speaking to, they will hear his voice. And they, like Abraham, will obey. They will come. They will repent. They will be given heaven in Jesus the Christ. And this is why in the New Testament we read about this gift of obedience, the one that Abram displayed, the one that those Deuteronomy verses speak about as being those that love God. And this obedience is a gift of God, part of the choosing of God, the calling of God. And this is why some obey and most will not, cannot. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, we're told. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as 
in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These people obeyed. They were Christians. And Paul is telling them to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Abram obeyed. He left. And saints, you're never too old to obey God. Verses 5 through 7. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and, and the people that they acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at this time, the Canaanites were in the land. In his obedience, Abram left all that he knew, and he began being homeless. And this is when we come to verses 7 through 9. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And, a and then Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. In verse 7, we learn an important lesson of walking with the Lord. One that we need to really listen to. God is never going to tell you what step 2 is until you obey step 1. So if you ever feel mired down with the Lord, like, I just can't make any headway with him. If you ever feel like he's not answering your prayers, like you just can't get any deeper, any further with him, stop and ask yourself this. What was the last thing that he commanded you to do? What was the last thing that you know that he convicted you of in your heart concerning his word? What was that thing? That is the thing that you must obey him in. He's never going to relent. He's never going to change his mind. He's never going to allow you to sidestep that command. He will never take you to step number two until you have obeyed step number one. You must obey. The question then is, does obedience in all things at all times, is that the thing that proves that you are the elect of God, the called? What if you don't obey? Or what if you're not perfect in your obedience? Does that prove that you're not of the elect? That maybe that a sense of uh, assurance of faith that you have that might be false, well, the question, that question is going to be answered in this question, in this chapter. And again, to be able to answer that question in this chapter, to understand this chapter, we must have a biblical worldview, a God-centered view of this Bible. We need to know why it's important to get Genesis 1-1 right. Because if you get the why of creation wrong, then anything, then everything in your thinking is going to be off. You recall Genesis 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was God who was outside and above his creation who created time, who created space, who created matter. And he did all, these, all of these things. He did them. Not for creation, but for a specific reason told to us in a Rev- Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God who created all things, who is sovereign over all things, he is the same God who works all things together for our good, for those that love him that he has called. And he shows us, he demonstrates to us in the chapter 12 of Genesis how he does that in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now remember that that while God has called Abram specifically and has given specific promises to bless him and and land, at the same time, he had other children as well. Children that he doesn't make that same commitment to. That he doesn't call to live as Abram does. He has Job, Melchizedek, and all those saints in Salem. And they were all contemporaries of Abram. And none of them were predestined to be the father of the faith. None of them were called for such a time as that. And none of them had been promised a land. And then told by God that he was going to give them that land. And every one of them remained where they were during this famine. Abram, he left the land. The land that was promised to him that had already been pointed out to him. So was going to Egypt sinful for Abram? That's a much harder question to answer than if his actions while he was in Egypt, if they were sinful. In verse 1, we hear God telling Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And then God told Abraham in verse 7 that it was the land of Canaan that he would give to him. So why would Abram leave Canaan? Well, the answer to that question is going to be revealed when Abram finally obeys God. Until then, we have the account of Abram in verses 11 through 16. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they're going to kill me, but they're going to let you live. You, you just say that you're my sister so that it will go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female servants, male servants, donkeys, and camels. Just so that we're all clear about what has happened here. Abram has told Sarai, his wife, to lie. To go along with the half-truth, since they were technically brother and sister. And she obeyed her husband. 
and she was taken from him by the princes of Pharaoh to become one of Pharaoh's concubines. And in return, Abram was given lots of stuff. Husbands, think about this. He's just traded his wife to another man for stuff. First to save his own neck. And then, as an added bonus, he was given lots of stuff for her. And he seemed to be just fine with this arrangement. There are a lot of modern-day practical applications that can and should be heeded within this account. Now remember, again, this is not a story. This is not make-believe. This happened. Abram was real. Sarai was real. Egypt was real. And this real man, who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, to be able to hear and obey the voice of God. He has, in obedience to the Lord, left his home, the safety of what he knew, and he's embarked on a walk of faith. And now, and now, this is where the practical application comes in. Now, because there was a famine in the land, because life was getting hard where they were, because the desert isn't just really that pretty of a place to live. There weren't really many conveniences where they were. There weren't many people in that area. Abram took that as an outward indication. It's time to move on to greener pastures. Move to a place where there is financial security. An easier life could be had in Egypt. A place where there was much more pleasing to the eye. There was greenery there. There was trees there. There was a steady source of water which made life much more secure. Ah, sure, there's some dangers. Sure, there's going to be some concessions that we're going to have to make, but the ease of life, it's worth it. And Abram is living large in the land of Egypt, basking in the things that he traded for his wife, while his wife was taken from him and is being prepared to become the wife of another man. In modern terms, we could say that Abram trafficked Sarai. He receives payment and grows wealthy from her sexual exploitation. He commits fraud by presenting her as his sister, a convenient half-truth. He coerces her into a, situ a situation that she has no way out of. And this is the, the, the very definition of human trafficking. Sarai had no voice in this matter. She's been doubly displaced. She's an immigrant now and a victim of human trafficking. And Abram, he didn't seem to be bothered by this. Why? Because he's no longer in that dry desert where there was no assurances of food and water. He's secure in Egypt. Plenty of food. Plenty of water, plenty of nice things. He still prayed to God, still believed in God, still thought of himself as being of God. And maybe even once in a while, he made reference to God in passing conversation with those pagans that he was feasting with. He didn't seem to be bothered by how his actions, how his decisions in life, what those 
what the outcome of those were and what the effects of his life were. But the Lord was. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Not only did God protect the chastity of Sarai, he must have revealed to Pharaoh that it was because of Sarai, because of Abram, that he and his household were being afflicted by these great plagues, which is why we're given verses 18 through 20. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She's my sister, so that I took her from my, for, for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they, w- they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Men, Christian men, listen to me. Hear me on this. There is nothing more humiliating, nothing more devastating to your gospel witness than to have a pagan, a hater of God, act more godly than you. This is shameful. Pharaoh, a man who claimed to be a living God, he wasn't just merely part of a false religion. He was the head of a false religion. And he calls out Abram, the father of faith, for lying, for cowardice, for acting ungodly. And this is shameful. And Pharaoh had such little regard for this man of God that he gave orders to his men not to harm him, which was the very thing that Abram seemed to be most worried about. Pharaoh would have been right in executing this man and turning his men loose on him. Instead, he was so disgusted by the lies of this man, the fact that he could enjoy these creature comforts while his wife was the concubine of another man, that he could be okay with profiting by the sale of his wife, that he warns his men to do no harm to this man, Abram. And then in his disgust, because of the Abram's shameful actions, he tells him, get out. Abram has to be forced to leave this pagan land. And Abram left with all of his goods and all of his men and all of his wife. But he also took with him the shame that would follow him the rest of his life. And this, this is the reality of the unconditional part of the unconditional election of God. Because if God looked down a quarter of time at any of us to determine who would truly believe and would walk in that belief, he would have walked back into that office, looked at his son, and told him, there's none that believe, none that walk by faith, none that can be covered by the blood of your your son. And this is what makes the grace of God so amazing. 
It's when you understand that you did nothing to be deserved, to be predestined, to be called, to be elected, and you never will, never will. It's when you are faced daily, almost on a minute-by-minute basis with the reality of your sinfulness, and that is a grace of God when he does that, that you finally wonder at this God who saved you. And it is then that you can understand that God predestining any, choosing any, that's not unfair. It's amazing that his choosing to die for any is an amazing grace that none of us deserve. The T of total depravity remains in all of us. And this is the reality of all humanity. And it doesn't matter how much you love them. They're totally depraved. We've all committed eternal, unmitigated treason against a holy, righteous, and good God. And we all deserve the just rewards of those actions. An eternity in torment in hell, under the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us. This is not seating. It isn't raising. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that any boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And those are Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Abraham, Abram is not to be commended for his life. None of the men in the Bible are. They are no different than you or me. They are all reprobate. They were all dead in their trespasses and sin, and they all still sinned every single day of their lives. And they, saints, every one of them, every single one of them that were predestined to be sons of God, they all were sons of God, unconditionally elected. None worthy of the atonement of God, which is the grace of God. Saints, 
wonder. Wonder at the grace that has been shown to you. That has been bestowed on you. You're not worthy. You are no better than any other. More often than not, actually, we're like Abram. Less moral. Less acting in morality than those that are not the elect and predestined. And this should cause us to wonder. This should cause us to glory in, to shout praise to God all the more that he in his grace and mercy would die to save any, would save any. And that you, that you, from eternity past, would be part of that unconditional election to the praise and glory of God that should cause us to wonder at this God. And not quibble over how, but why. Let's pray.